Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your monthly look at the world of EBM. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor here at the BMJ. Uh, as always, I'm joined by Helen and Carl, who've both made it into the studio today. Carl, can I get you to introduce yourself? Yes, hi, I am Carl Hennigan. I'm editor-in-chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine and professor of EBM at the University of Oxford and a general practitioner. And Helen. I'm Helen MacDonald. I'm the UK research editor for the BMGA and arresting GP. <laughs> I like how you've stuck with that. Yeah, I have. I think it suits me well. I think, though, with the coronavirus, you may I have might to, be called up. They might, might be, be desperate enough that they'll call me back yes. immediately. This week, we are going to be doing some starting and some stopping. Helen. Shall we start with you? Yes, I wanted to talk about an interesting paper which was published in the the BMJ uh, back at the end of the January, actually. Um, and I think this I think this is a start, maybe to start looking at your opioid prescribing in chronic pain. Um, and the background is that prescription opioids are a big problem. Um, they cause iatrogenic harm in in some cases, and in the US, this is an even bigger problem than in some other parts of the world. Um, And the authors of this particular research paper say that in order to educate and support prescribers, we really need to understand who's prescribing and what their patterns of prescribing are. So they did this retrospective study in a big US healthcare insurance system um, between 2003 and 2017, looking at the volume and patterns of prescriptions by provider. (coughs) By provider, I think they mean a single person, but I could be wrong. Um, And what they find is that things are very skewed. And what seemed astounding to me was that they said the top 1% of prescribers accounted for essentially half of all of the opioid doses and about 27% of all of the opioid prescriptions. And they felt quite confident in these findings because it's a big study, it's national, um, it was over a long time period, they did lots of clever um, adjustments accounting for the prescription length and the number of people people see and the number of prescriptions they do. Um, And over time, these high prescribers seemed like a stable group of people in this kind of countrywide phenomenon. So there's that whole like atlas of variation thing that said that, you know, you get these pockets of the way people do medicine. So, you know, whatever it is, sending people for MRI can be quite a localised thing. Was there any data about who these people were? Who, yeah. Were they clustered? Or? They did. They said, and it's it's hard to, in, to interpret in some ways, but... Um, more than half of that top centile of prescribers were in family medicine, so about 24%, um, or in physical or pain medicine and re- rehabilitation, that was about 14% of them, um, anesthesiology um, and internal medicine. So in some ways you think, well, that's kind of Makes justified sense. because those people are probably the people that are dealing with chronic pain. But at the same time, that they there's, they sort of make a suggestion that not all of that um, prescribing can be... Um, justified perhaps so they say that those top prescribers are consistently prescribing well above um, the CDC recommended opioid doses and durations for the management of chronic pain so they think that there's something unusual about that group of people and it's quite interesting because 
I, I like the way that they 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 try to apply this to then what should happen in the mm. real world. And their suggestion is that with this top centile, there's clearly a group of people that have sustained high prescribing over time, um, and their patients are perhaps at the highest risk of harm. So they suggest that those are the target clinicians, or maybe they're not clinicians, they're healthcare services, um, whatever a provider means in this paper. They're the places to target for education and support for clinicians on prescribing. And that might be a better approach if you want to minimise inappropriate prescribing than just targeting blanket um, education initiatives at everybody mm. um, because it's a, it actually seems to be a, a small, much smaller proportion of um, prescribers who are doing that um, prescribing. Yeah. I found this quite an interesting issue but I think it's a nice start but there's a lot of bits of information missing in the paper because it, it just gives us a headline figure 1% of all exactly. prescribers are responsible for all the problems but we know that's not the case Mm. because there can be clear reasons why you're in that high level and we looked at this in sometimes in terms of deaths and and people start saying death cluster in one percent of gps or one percent of family docs but they're all the ones that have palliative care and nursing homes under their wing Mm. interestingly here as well it picks out one of the indications as back problems But I think it's interesting, when you see back problems, often people have tried a lot of interventions. So they've tried the paracetamol, they've tried the non-steroidal, and they want to get moving and it's debilitated. So you're at that crux where you are at, oh, we're going to go to the codeine now because we want to get you moving. So I think there's a lot more to be drawn out in this paper to help us understand what we should and shouldn't do. My position is to say, if I'm going to prescribe them in these indications, it's only to give a short duration of use so that you don't get beyond the three to five days and you're still on them and actually you have got better, but you're going to, the problem is you don't want people to get addicted. Yes, that's what, I think that's what they're saying when they're looking at um, the prescriptions above and beyond the, the CDC recommendations because that's very similar to what, what they, they lay out in the paper, that short-term defined mm. um, duration. But I think there's an interesting point. One of the big things in America is the opiate sort of a crisis is the number of deaths being caused by opioid prescriptions. But there's a real interesting caveat. As you solve one problem, then another problem emerges. And in the back of the discussion, they say that actually there's been a recent increase in deaths from illicit opioids as an unintended consequence of reducing the availability of medical prescribed opioids. More people are going on to substitutes, are going on to heroin, and actually they're far more uh, serious and far more potent and are giving rise to more deaths. So it's not quite as straightforward as if you reduce this, you'll solve all the problems. Mm. We had a really interesting paper about the move to fentanyl because mm-hmm. essentially when you've got a black market in things it's, it's all about maximising your, your return or getting most bang for your buck and you know fentanyl is what does that it's uh, it's way to do it so it's an interesting thing this is very much based in the states which have their own esoteric way of organising their healthcare system and I just wondered um, for you two as GPs did you know how your prescribing worked within you know, where you fell in the rate of prescription of opioids or whatever compared to your kind of colleagues around the country. And if just a simple bit of feedback like that might help people, you know, moderate their their, their so, prescription. So there are there are large scale, you can look at it on a practice right now in uh, open prescribing data, which is run by a chap called Ben Goldacre at our department, who that you can look and benchmark different practices. But as individuals, we get 
back fed back our data in audits so that's not widely available but each practice and each individual because as you sign a prescription it is it is annotated to my recorded to my name the last audit i did was actually against antibiotic prescribing because we're not high users of uh, opiates in out of hours care but uh, antibiotics is important and it was useful to benchmark you against individuals but also looking at the cost as well Hmm. so helen what's your takeaway from that what's your start or stop well my start was to start looking at your opioid prescribing and, and comparing it to other people, not in a judgmental way. If you're high or if you're low, I don't know that that means that um, you can you can be um, either very pleased with yourself or disappointed with yourself. But you, just really as a signal to look at your practice. Great. So, Carl, you've been doing some maths. I can see you've been doodling <laughs> numbers on the edge of an NEJM paper you've got there about lung cancer screening. Uh, what does that tell you about starting or stopping something? Well, interestingly, early this month, the Nelson trial, which was a trial of 13,195 men and 2,594 women, looked at lung cancer screening and gave the 10-year follow-up data. Uh, really important outcomes and, and important to look at what it means. Now, one of the things is, and I had great difficulty with this paper, was getting my head round the exact results. And if you had problems, Carl, I think other people <laughs> will struggle. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this is really interesting. And what it reports in the paper is it reports the cumulative rate ratio for death from lung cancer at 10 years was 0.76. 95% confidence interval, 0.61 to 0.94. already. Mm. Yeah. Well, interestingly, is the first thing you know is that's lung cancer-specific death. So you have to go in the back of the paper to find out about all-cause mortality. Which, of course, is important here because if you're treated for lung cancer, there may be harmful things given to you that may cause your other your other reasons for dying to increase correct and there's a huge debate at the moment about what should we do with lung cancer screening we talked about this earlier last year with nhs england rolling out case finding and trucks in high risk areas mm. but there are two important papers for me uh, that really influenced my practice and my thinking. The first is going back to 2003. There's a paper by Gerd Gigerenza on using natural frequencies. What's a natural frequency? I think we should explain that. Yeah, well, instead of using percentages and trying to use these relative measures or statistics, what you try and say is in a natural occurring cohort of a patient, like a hundred or a thousand patients, what are you likely to see? Now, the second paper that's really interesting is a paper by Steve Wollison and Lisa Swartz that says these papers are dominated by relative risks. Please give me the absolute numbers. And it, that paper was published over 10 years ago. The situation has got worse, not better. But what I did is try to say, OK, if you take 2,000 people in this trial, 1,000 get lung cancer screening and 1,000 don't. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Well, in the 1,000 people who were screened, 132 people died and in the thousand people who weren't screened 130 people died so the first thing you can see is there's no difference in terms of all-cause mortality mm. between the two groups then you can break that down in the people who were screened out of that 132 24 died of lung cancer and 108 died of something else if you look in the non-screened group 32 people 
died of lung cancer and 98 died of something else. So what you've got is these two opposing issues. The, the 0.76 refers to the 24 lung cancers in the screen group compared to the 32 in the non-screen group. Mm. But you get this increase in the death from other causes. And that increase is about 10% more. And in some areas, like death from endocrine causes, were doubled in the, in the screening group. Not only that, then you can start to think about the other issues. Within that 1,000 people, what else is going on? So, for instance... Of the 1,000 people, 71 will have a positive screening test, 31 of them will be lung cancer, and 40 will be false positive. So you've created that anxiety. You'll also get six cases of lung cancer will be overdiagnosis. Mm. That's the people who will have a lung cancer detected, and it will never go on to cause any problems. So one of the things here is what I'm really interested in is the decision to screen or not will be a value judgment, whether you think it's a good or bad thing to do. Our job is to educate and inform the policy makers and the public. And these journal papers certainly don't do that as they currently stand. And I think we need a real change in terms of these papers to say, here's the absolute numbers. And now you can make a value judgment on whether you think this is a, an important thing to do based on all of the data and all of the important issues that you want to know about. Mm. Interestingly, I was just looking up while you were talking. Um, I was looking up the consort statement, which is the reporting guideline um, for trials to give researchers guidance on what information to include in their journal publication. And in the results section on the outcomes and estimation item 17b it says for the outcomes you need to present both the absolute and the relative effect sizes um so that's interesting isn't it because it's sort of you're being asked for that but maybe those um maybe those items are not getting enough prominence in that section or in the abstract so i guess you can always go in the tables and dig this out but i think you just need a lot of expertise to piece those numbers together i think what's important is the people doing the research have to understand the emotiveness around the decision to screen or not and in understanding that they should be adhering to this concept of producing the absolute effects but what's clear is that is not happening you have to go in the back of the paper you have to do quite a bit of maths to get to that sort of natural frequencies and it did take me quite a considerable time and I, I consider myself quite numerate. I'm sure there's many statisticians out there who disagree but actually it is difficult and what's interesting is so few people do this. So you're left with this confusing picture of oh well there's a reduction in lung cancer mortality what's the problem we should screen everybody and, and often that's enough for people to then go yeah let's go and screen. But actually, you've got to consider all of the evidence, in, and particularly what you said about the absolute effects, incredibly important. Mm. So you've snuck in uh, what we should do is put absolute numbers there in guise of a, uh, a lung cancer screening uh, paper. Do we have anything to say about the, the, the screening implications of this? Did your maths help you uh, decide what to do at all? Well, uh, yeah, so what happens is, you're dead right, the papers come out, there's lots of emotive, and then what happens is we only see the absolute numbers and people will have seen these picturegrams of a thousand people and they've done it for the american trials but they tend to only do that when the decision has been made mm. and it's and then you're trying to inform the public oh if you come for this screening test here's what you might consider might happen to you what i'm saying is it has to come right up front 
and it has to be done really well so people right at the outset can get their head around what the issues are. Um, I don't think my job is to say people what they should and shouldn't do because as a society we will have decisions about how we want to spend our money. But the key is if you want to spend it in this way, you should understand these effects, but you should also understand what happens if you spent a billion pounds, for instance, on reducing smoking and reducing the high-risk population. Should you put yeah. your money there? So you have to understand this and you have to understand the alternatives to arrive at a policy decision of what to do. Mm. And I suppose especially when we're thinking about screening, you know, thinking holistically about the person as a whole, not just their lungs. And then the society is... Uh, You're in a very tempered important. mood today, Carl. Yeah. I am. Thank you very <laughs> much. Very it's cautious. Yeah, so I'm not getting that angry. But the thing as well that comes with this is it's wor- always worse in the abstract. And the abstract is what's freely available. It's mm. on PubMed. It's what people see first. Generally, people will not go in the back of the paper into the tables to pull out important issues like the total mortality. And I think that's incredibly important there's a problem with the abstract and people know this and there are issues is this being done deliberately or is it just like uh, incompetence a bit and we're not thinking about these issues but i think is it's very difficult to understand the decision as the paper is currently written Mm. and a lot it could be done a lot better yeah i was going to say it's not just that paper it seems to be pretty endemic do you want to talk about the other one that you were looking at this week? Well, look, these are, now I'm going to get this because this is obviously selected by the BMJ research editors. Mm-hmm. Are oh, you going to get ranty now? <laughs> you can well, again, me. I'm not going to go into the background, but this is the effect of dose and duration of reduction in dietary sodium on blood pressure levels. Now, this is an incredibly important issue. And this paper is well done and basically comes to a conclusion like the magnitude of blood pressure lowering achieved with sodium reduction showed a dose-response relation and was greater for older populations, non-white populations, those with higher blood pressure. Okay, great. But I actually want to know, based on this paper, what can I advise an individual and how do I translate the evidence? And that's a bit that was incredibly difficult for me. Did you have to do more maths? I had to do more maths because it said... Each 50 millimole reduction in 24-hour sodium excretion in the longer-term studies, beyond two weeks, gave rise to a 2 millimetre mercury of blood pressure. Okay, so that's helpful. But what do I tell a patient? Do I actually go to them and say, hmm, you should reduce your sodium by 50 millimoles? And what would that mean? So that's a bit where it gets... Well, look, here's where it gets... So I had to do the maths again. So I... And I'm sure somebody will be writing in and telling me I'm I'm all over the show, but I've rounded it up. So five grams of salt is about 2,000 milligrams of sodium. 100 milligrams, millimoles of sodium, is roughly about equal equal to that 2,000 milligrams of sodium, okay? And that is equivalent to about one teaspoon of salt, Okay. 100 millimoles of sodium gets me about 4 millimetres of mercury. That 100 millimoles is about equivalent to 2,000 milligrams of sodium, which is equal to 5 grams of salt, which is around about a teaspoon. There, so if you eat a teaspoon less, yeah. your systolic blood pressure would go down by about 4 millimetres of mercury in the short term. Isn't that so? Isn't that much more useful information that could have been imparted in the paper? It's like you're interviewing for another job, Carl, to join the research team. I am joining the research, <laughs> but I want to know when you get your statistics. Is you can do all the statistics is right now. Please 
please podcast, email in, write in and tell me I'm wrong. But what I'm trying to do is say, can I find some usable advice for clinicians and patients based on these results? And I do think that's the sort of thing as a little infographic could have said, here's what you can do with this paper. And I think we need more of that to make this more usable research. And I will say to people, about a teaspoon of salt is a useful thing to do. I mean, reducing it by that much, that seems like an awful lot of salt you must be eating in the first place. Well, Does just, it have that as a baseline? Well, just remember How that... How many teaspoons a day do we have on average? I don't know. Well, what you find is the recommended salt consumption per day is six grams per day. So it's, so it's all, basically all of it. Yeah. So one of the things you find here is that most people are having lots of salt in hidden salt. In processed foods are particularly bad. Uh, many of the ready meals are pretty bad. You can even find salt in all sorts of products, like even medicines contain salt. So the first thing is you've got your processed amount of salt, and then people add salt to their diet. So generally what you've got to do is try and get yourself down to six grams per day. Now, uh, a lot of people have a significantly more than that, and I would say you've got to look for that five or six grams and think where is it in your diet and reduce it, and that's the equivalent of a teaspoon. They go start hunting the salt. So there we go. That's a different way of interpreting a paper, perhaps with some useful advice to GPs. Now, Helen, you've got some more useful advice for GPs um, about looking at test results. I do. This is about understanding what your test results mean. And it's a paper that appeared in the education section of the BMJ this week by James McCormack and Daniel Holmes. Um, and they are looking at how accurate common test results are. And what they say is quite intriguing. I've never thought about this deeply enough before, I don't think, was that there are three major things that sort of throw um, imprecision into the test results that we see. Um, they're sort of quite mechanical things like how the test sample is collected and handled and transported and stored. So things like leaving your blood test in a hot box above a radiator or something being a bad idea. Um, then you have some analytical variation in lab techniques, which um, they say in our kind of modern era causes very minimal uh, variation in our tests. But the big issue is ourselves, um, the test subjects and the biological variation um, that humans display. And there's not very much we can do to reduce our biological variation, except... Um, essentially what they say is that, that we need to understand it. And in this article, the authors have done a really great job, I think, of trying to put together some helpful information for jobbing doctors on the test results that they see most commonly. Um, and it's a bit techy, but if you stick with it, there's lots of useful information in there. Um, and in particular, they have a kind of master table and it, it exists as an interac interactive infographic online. So they look at tests like bone mineral density, haemoglobin, cholesterol measures, vitamin D, TSH, HbA1c. Um, and they, they try and do a couple of things in this paper. One is to answer what is the analytical and biological variation around a single measure that you might take, like a, any single HbA1c result. And then they try and understand what kind of variability do you get if you do serial measures? Um, sort of, you know, if you take two measures 
is the difference that you're seeing between those two tests a, a real difference or is that just biological variation? And this might help you work out things like, does a person really have diabetes? Mm. Um, if you're measuring the response to starting a drug such as a statin and you're looking at someone's um, LDL, um, is, is it accurate enough to be helpful? And then if you alter their dose in response to having um, not reduced their LDL sufficiently, is that helpful measure to go on and measure again? Um, so I think I think it's just very interesting, and I wanted us to hear from from um, the authors of this paper the answers to some of these questions um, in their own words. You know, we always think about the whole concept of lab error, where you know you, you, the, the samples get mixed up, or you know it's run through the wrong machine and all that, and that certainly does happen. But with the with the, the standards that are put in place, I mean, it's it's pretty unusual. I mean, it's it's less than one percent, and that's from data from ten years ago. I'm sure it's even better now. There's two other types of variation or things that can go on to influence a a number that you get back, and one of them is the analytic variation, which is just how good that test is at uh, measuring something. Uh, one of the best examples I, I try to think of as far as analytic variation is if you were to try and measure someone with a one foot ruler and you know you put it uh, against the person and then moved it up and measured again, every time you measured the height of that person, their height would change. But you know, common sense would dictate that person's height hasn't changed. <laughs> so that's the analytic variation. What's what's what the good news is, is that the analytic variation is actually very well controlled. And in fact, it's it's probably small enough that we don't need to worry about it for the vast majority of tests where we where the the, the biggest issue around variation is that biologic variation, the natural fluctuation of things that go on in, in, in a body, the, the sort of noise that we can't eliminate uh, due to the normal physiological processes. I mean, for instance, things like, uh, you know, your, your sodium uh, level doesn't fluctuate a huge amount uh, because there's sort of homeostatic mechanisms that deal with that. But for instance, something like vitamin D, the variation in that, it can go up, you know, relatively day to day, month to month. There's some uh, uh, seasonal variation. Uh, and so it's, it's that type of thing that goes on. Uh, one of the one of the problems with this variation, as you can imagine, is when we have these arbitrary thresholds for diagnosis. So there's two things. We do a test to see if you have this diagnosis. And in this case, we're doing that with with A1C. So, for instance, if you were to get uh, uh, an A1C back of, say, 6.7 percent, that's kind of sort of maybe diabetes, but not really diabetes, depending on you know, what threshold you use, but, a, but, a, but around that test is a plus and minus. And so, you know, in, in our, in our paper, when we talked about that, it, the plus minus is anywhere between sort of six to 10%, or it could be as high as 11 to uh, 20%, uh, depending on, you know, who you're testing and so on. And so if you just, just let's just use the, as a 10% number as a plus minus. So if you, let's say you get an A1C back of seven, you, you can, you, all you can really say is it's probably somewhere between 6.3 uh, or maybe 6.5 and maybe 7.5. So given that the, you know, the threshold for pre-diabetes versus diabetes versus, in, in quotation marks, normal is, is about a spread of about one and one and a half, it makes it very tricky to, you, you can remeasure it again and 
could be way outside of, you can go from being a pre-diabetic to a diabetic or normal just based on that uh, biologic variation. And so what we try to do in that paper is give the example of how to think about it. And I think one of the key things is it shows that that there's two problems here. The lab test is a problem, but also our being fixated on a specific threshold, which is very arbitrary. I was surprised that with these serial measures, some tests seem to vary not very much, like bone mineral density only varied about 2 to 5%, but some of them varied hugely. Like they said um, TSH varied 41 to 50% in serial measures. Um, so I put it out to you. What do you think, Duncan and Carl? I mean, it's Sorry, not that surprising that something like bone mineral density, because if you think, as going back to my like, true, biological, I forget you're a biological person. <laughs> like, there's there's the the chemical processes going on there are are fairly slow, whereas something like thyroid stimulating hormone is a squishy mm. gland that's you know responding to a lot of stuff that's going on. So there'll be a, a, a much more like actively going on there. So mm. kind of. So I think a lot of people would understand this from blood pressure. So there are two things when you measure blood pressure. One is the machine, and the machine has to be accurate, but that can have some tolerance. And actually, the recognised standard for a blood pressure machine is about plus or minus five millimetres of mercury. If it's more than that, it doesn't get recommended. So that's your analytical variability. And the thing about that is a systematic error in effect, it will go up or down, but in one way. And then you've got your blood pressure, which is your biological variability, which can vary hugely by plus or minus 20 millimetres of mercury, and in some people, even more, depending on what activities and what you're doing. So one of the things with blood pressure, to get a true measure, is we take more measures, in effect. You do the ambulatory. And you have to increase the number of measures to get an accurate measure over a period of time and use the average blood pressure. So that's the bit about the serial measures. But I think this is really helpful. Where you often see people, and take the cholesterol, the cholesterol is a good example. Total cholesterol, they call it the reference change value, is about 20%. How much does it have to change by for you to say this is a significantly different value? So if you've got a total cholesterol of 5, and you come back and say, I've got my new super diet, and now I'm down to 4.6 you go that could actually just form within your biological variability and the analytical variability it has to go beyond 20 percent so it has to come down have you ever said that to a patient carl no i haven't <laughs> but i tend to go oh that's quite interesting but what's interesting about that is to know you shouldn't be changing treatments mm. because the opposite can happen somebody's cholesterol five and it goes up by a certain amount 10 percent to 5.5 and you should go hold on a minute that's normal variability what the issue is is a tendency to then pile in with a higher dose which actually might not get you no. much reduction compared to the standard dose and so in what, fact they suggest that the additional reduction is totally unmeasurable yes and so what you really should do is say hold on a minute let's repeat the measure and get some serial measures to understand what the average is and whether this is just all noise or is it actually a signal and this paper's been quite well picked up on Twitter and I think it was on Twitter I read one of the comments um, or a suggestion which I thought was quite helpful was that wouldn't it be interesting if test results came with that biological variation kind of marked 
around them. So the, as you're plotting or looking at people's test results to see how they've changed over time, to try and be able to see if that change is, is clearly meaningful or potentially just noise. And that's kind of what the infographic sets out to do, is, yes, is does, make that a little bit visual. Which I is think there's a huge interest for laboratory and PATH people to start to put together that sort of textual information on, on the results, if you like, and, and, and help clinicians, because you can't work this out, you can't go and look this up. You need that with the result mm. to be able to interpret it. And equally, this you know this was written with GPs in mind, but um, there's lots of stuff on there that were probably really useful for any clinician, anyone who's doing tests. Oh, yes, to, I left have behind in that table all the results, which I never dwell on in detail. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, there we go. So you've had a bump a lot of starts and stops. To make up for last week, we have opioids. Start measuring yourself against what other people are doing and have a think about how often you prescribe. We have lung cancer screening, where Carl managed to slip in. Maybe. A maybe. <laughs> and a sneaky, you know, do do absolute numbers, but maybe do some screening. Uh, then on to sodium, where you can advise people to have a teaspoon of salt less. And finally, um, your results may vary. Have a look at where a test result lies within the different kinds of variation that are naturally occurring. That means it's, it's not actually that different. We have had a really interesting paper that I thought when I read it, Helen, was right down your alley, given your interest in conflicts of interest. Um, that is a paper about conflicts of interest and... Uh, tanning. Conflicts of interest in the tanning industry. You're having difficulty industry. finding your words today, aren't you, Duncan? I am. <laughs> I'll take over. Well, actually, <laughs> I'll pause on the conflicts of interest for a moment um, because something that interests me possibly even more than conflicts of interest is I love uh, interviewing authors and I've interviewed lots of authors over the years about their research and I have often found that the most interesting question um, you ask them, and it, it's sometimes, Duncan, it's when you're up in the uh, little studio setting things up and I say things like, oh, this is very informal. Why don't you just tell me why did you do this in the first place? Oh, and I think gold. it's such a fascinating question. And you so rarely find the answer to that question in the background of any research paper. Um, and, and I like this paper, um, not just because it's com about conflicts of interest, but um, because I think it's a really fascinating story. Um, and the paper's senior author, um, who's a professor of dermatology called Eleni Linos, um, told Duncan a bit about her story. So back in 2012... She published a systematic review and meta-analysis which pulled evidence um, and showed that sunbeds and UV exposure was linked to melanoma and other non-melanoma skin cancers. Um, and, and it seemed to sort of go out there and be reasonably uncontroversial. I but mean, who's surprised by that? And though, Yeah, it's not particularly surprising. But several years later, she got a, a critical um, response to her paper online, um, which made her go back and double check the science and check um, that, that, you know, everything was in order, which it was. And she started thinking about why this happened. Um, and I think um, we should listen to Eleni talk about her puzzlement um, about this response to her uh, paper. 
So as a scientist, you know, my first reaction was I need to double check my methodology, double check the science, make sure that is rock solid and very, very correct. Um, and when I read through the criticism, it seemed to be um, nonspecific. And as uh, as far as I could assess, we hadn't made a mistake that was um, that that changed the the finding. It, there wasn't anything we needed to 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 change in terms of the methodology of the paper. They they were questioning the methodology of of systematic reviews generally and highlighting issues that were uh, possibly uh, concerns in in all in all systematic reviews and um, not necessarily unique problems to ours. The other thing that that I found a little bit confusing was why this was uh, this rapid response came several years after our initial paper. I, I wasn't sure what the significance of that timing was. And that's when I, I decided to get get some more advice. Um, and so I, I believe another colleague recommended I speak to Stan because they were concerned um, this might be related to conflict of interest and might be an intentional and, and paid uh, uh, attack or response to our, our science. And Eleni later learned from, from a guy called Stanton Glantz, who's a professor of tobacco control at the University of California, um, that there's a sort of industry tactic um, to manufacture doubt about science which doesn't favour their product. Um, and he ex- explained a bit about how this could be done um, and described it as a sort of attack on the scientific process um, because it was hard for the tobacco industry to argue that smoking was good for you. But what they could do was criticise studies which showed some kind of link between smoking and harms and the the idea was that if you sort of nitpick on these small relatively minor details um, because no study is perfect you can create a degree of doubt or uncertainty about um, whether the whether there is really that much harm um, or encourage a situation where the bur- burden of proof to show harm is sort of unfeasibly high mm. um, and, and, the, and the overall effect is that you distract attention from the overall body of evidence and the bigger picture that smoking is harmful. And I think the really important bit there is, is this is talking about what happens in the public realm not just within you know between yeah. researchers so it's it's muddying the political process it's muddying whether you are you know whether you should smoke or not and they just want to eke out a little bit of extra time yes so so um Stanton got involved with with Eleni's team and and, and they seem to have struck up some kind of collaboration to look into whether this issue that cropped up with um, Eleni's response could be tied into COI and they went on to produce this paper which which I, when we read it at the manuscript meeting, I just had no idea of the level of detail and meticulousness and checking and blinding Mm. of everybody that they did to really um, put this beyond doubt. And they were looking at whether research, education, comment, opinion papers, which had some financial tie to the tanning industry had more favourable conclusions about tanning compared to those without such ties. Um, And I think we should listen to Eleni again, just explain the key findings of the paper. So um, what we found was that overall, um, a small number of articles had financial links to the tanning industry. So the the majority of um, articles included in our systematic review 
uh, were independent of the tanning industry. However, those that did have financial links to industry were much more likely to favor indoor tanning, to um, discredit harms and support potential benefits um, than articles that were independent. Among the articles with financial links to industry, 78% favored tanning, compared to only 4.4% among those that were independent of industry funding. So that difference is, is quite striking. And regardless of which category of article we looked at, if we looked at articles published before 1990 versus after, if we looked at articles that were empiric versus non-empiric, if we looked at articles in high-impact journals, um, you still see a, a significant association between the financial conflict of interest link and um, the stance or the, uh, the uh, final conclusion on indoor tanning. And the other bit I found really fascinating, Duncan, in, in your interview was them was her colleague um, explaining um, why this was such painstaking work um, and, and the detail that oh, they have to go into. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. So that's Yogi. That's Yogi, yeah. Um, and Is the final... Is that because, like, they're coming up at the company or because of the methodological... No, it was the methodological about, yeah. stuff. Um, and what Yogi was saying was that they... they they blinded all of the assessors to these papers. So they, when you were deciding whether the paper was um, favourable towards tanning oh, okay. or neutral or negative, you were blinded to whether that paper had um, financial ties, which is on one level obvious. Yeah. Um, but I think just to think through the methodological steps that you need to think of upfront before you start um, in case you should fall into any of these pitfalls later. I think it would just have been so easy to have done something which the peer reviewers or the editors or the process would pick up and go, oh, well, you could have, this could have introduced yeah. some bias here. So to try and just design something that was sort of so bulletproof and beyond um, suspicion, I, I think was, was uh, yeah, yeah so tremendous. They've, they've taken this paper looking at tanning, and this is the first time someone's done that. But yeah, the, that methodology has been developed over time from, you know, the tobacco industry, climate change research, things like that, anything where they're really expecting industry to come in and try and nitpick, um, you know, just to, as you say, make it as bulletproof as possible. And I think the final thing that was interesting about this, and there was an editorial link to this paper that made the point that this is actually a relatively unusual case because, as Stanton was saying, a lot of um, the... The, the talk previously has been around manufactured doubt about the harms. But this paper is slightly different because it's not about casting doubt on the harms of um, tanning. This paper was about actually finding evidence of promoting tanning or being actually favourable towards tanning, which seems like a very unlikely um, outcome. Mm. So it was... Um, so I thought when... I did that interview after them. When you two did your harms podcast, mm -hmm. one of the guests there was talking about that stage management. Ghost management. Ghost management. Yeah. Sort of stage management. Stage managing <laughs> the scientific process, yeah. essentially. And, you know, these are almost the two, two arms. It's a pincer movement. Cast out on one side and then, you know, potentially 
uh, cast out about the, the harms and, you know, maybe throwing some stuff about the positives. I and, think it's really interesting to think about that, isn't it? To think how much of this is intentional and conscious bias actually manufactured by somebody and how much of this is, might be unconscious because it's not necessarily that all of these pieces were were funded directly by the tanning industry. It might be that a particular author declared some financial interest with that industry. And it's one of the reasons why at the BMJ, when we introduced our policy of... Um, excluding authors with financial conflicts of interest from writing um, education content in that area. Um, We just had a very harsh rule for exclusion because we just didn't know how we would remove either the perception that there could be bias or the fact that there could be some unconscious bias, even if the author is trying their hardest to manage out any, you know... the thing that's interesting is how we continue to consider that people involved in the development of interventions, devices, drugs, uh, can be independent when it comes to mm. producing the research. Mm. And uh, we don't seem to have any concept of understanding that issue because I think we're all sort of primed to want to develop things and do more and put things out there. And so if we're not commercially conflicted, we're academically conflicted. Therefore, we sort of tolerate a certain amount of conflicts in the development and evaluation of interventions. The problem with all of this is is the, the sheer number of devices, technologies, drugs, and things that can benefit you are overwhelming now. And so I feel like we're completely lost in being able to tell what works anymore. And you, and you can't go out in the world anymore. Everything is commercialised. And when you start with your children, it's commercialised. You, you you can't buy a, 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 a anything plain anymore. It's got some adverts on it. And as soon as we're primed throughout life now, we're primed to be marketed at all the time. And what's happening here is people are realising if you go to science and evidence, you can really twist people's perceptions. And the thing is, if you think tanning is a good idea and you see a bit of evidence, that's enough for you to say, right, I'm okay, let's carry on. And and I have deep concerns that we are in an era now where for quite some time we'll be, it'll be all noise and we won't be able to tell what on earth is going on in terms of what to advise people and the public. So the interesting thing for me from this was the fact that what industry done had done is, it's really clever, it's turned the like mechanism that makes science good you know, turned it up too far and, and, and used it against itself in a way. That that sort of, you know, science advantage by critiquing a paper and, and looking at it, but not to the point of the minutiae kind of deliberately missing the thrust, the direction of a paper and, and, and just taking the tiny little bits that are wrong in, in every paper. And I suppose, you know, that that's what I was going to ask you about, Carl, is, you know, where does that criticism... Where is it useful and and at what point does that tip over into something that is unuseful and and can we measure that somehow or can we you know start to think about as uh, as editors perhaps when we're getting back peer review or whatever well, that, that this is useful this isn't you know well I think it's interesting in the thought of for research one of the things is everybody sort of knows about conflicts of interest and financial conflicts of interest, but they they never sort of take it into account then in saying how might you use this to explain the uncertainty around what is the findings here. 
we tend to have very simplistic approaches like grade, which go, look, actually, this is high quality evidence and that's enough. But then you go, but actually, it's funded by industry. It's funded don't by grade that take that into account, don't they? Do yeah, but I think what we're getting to a point is we need much more nuanced understanding to say, look, this this whole area is problematic. Any findings that come in this area or or another area are influenced so much by the commercial art. There's no independent research, therefore the uncertainty is huge around any of what comes out. And what we are seeing now is a lack of independent research in many areas that matter because it's so expensive to do the research in the first place. Mm. And I suppose one of those areas is, and I'm teeing him up for his rant here, uh, smartphone apps. Okay, look, um, I and I have a super rant here. Smartphone apps. Uh, the world is predicated now that your phone is going to diagnose everything for you, save your life. In fact, you'll be able to connect it into your body and it will do everything. It will detect AF, it will detect skin cancers, you name it, it's going to replace all GPs. What a load of hokum, to be honest. And the thing here is this paper, I've never seen a paper like this. It's a great uh, systematic review of diagnostic accuracy study of smartphone apps. Um, one of the studies in here, there are a total of nine studies that evaluate six different iPhone uh, identifiable smartphone apps. And this is all for skin cancer? All for skin cancer. And in the results table, I've never seen this, one of them in 2014 actually had a sensitivity of 0%. So it didn't, wasn't able to pick up? Any of the... So that's deeply concerning. So basically, all of the apps, poor quality, didn't perform as what you want to, yet two of them have CE marking. And the reason what they have the C, C mark- What does the C marking say? Well, that's the marking in Europe that gives you a conformity assessment to be able to place your device on the market and say it's been approved by the European Union as uh, CE market, fit to market across all of Europe. Now, one of the things with that is it's, it is a smartphone apps come in what's called class one devices. Therefore, they're considered low risk. And therefore, all they have to do is show compliance with some essential requirement laws, which are very straightforward to do. Mm. Things like you switch it on, it performs as intended. Did you not have to have any clinical data? In America, under FDA, none of these are approved. So that's the first thing to know. And I think that's hugely important to understand that with smartphone apps, we have a significant problem. Because the thing is, as an individual, you may use one of these and be falsely reassured that everything's all right when you should have presented. And in clinical practice, it's never a one-off assessment. It's a moving feast. If I'm worried about somebody, I will go, look, I'm uncertain. I may refer you on to the two-week wait because I understand it's an indeterminate result, but my safety netting says I'm going to refer you. These are going into NHS innovation programmes. We have to have a serious debate and understanding of the limitations of these processes. And the most important aspect about these is they really do have, for serious diseases, require to have a sensitivity of 100%. They can have reduced specificity because when they're negative they have to rule out that you had skin cancer. Mm. So then a person can be reassured. It's okay to say they may be positive and they have false positives. They'll create a lot of work, but actually that's okay because at least they'll be safe. So there has to be some performance standards that say sensitivity for something like skin cancer has to be 100%, then we'll let it through. Mm. Or it has to be clear how it's going to be used, I guess. Because I guess if you're using it... As part of a, the skin as part of a pathway, is just for fun. 
<laughs> no, but what I mean is if you're if you're using a skin cancer app um, to then move on to another stage in the referral process, then yeah. perhaps you'll allow it to be less than 100%, Carl. Because well, there are other factors at play. But if you're if you're saying like it's it's either or, either you're going to go and see your GP or you're going to use this app, which is going to give you the answer. So so you're saying yes, integrate it into clinical prediction rules, and then you have to do the right type of research. You have to derive it in a clinical set, and then you have to validate it in a second set. So you're starting to have a higher bar for the type of evidence you would want to approve these devices. None of them have gone through that type of performance standards, and I would yes say great but also remembering you can't have sensitivities of 95 96 percent when you're going to say oh four in a hundred people who've got a melanoma we're just going to let go back out in the street you have to have processes like you're saying it's part of a clinical pathway which at some point will involve clinicians or a referral pathway mm. right well that's rant over. We know how Carl feels about apps. Uh, that is all from us this week. Just the last thing to Can do... Can I? I want to come in. The last thing I'm going to do is ask you, uh, you know, we've given people a flavour of what's going on, but uh, is there anything that people should be reading? And Helen, you might want to plug your COIs bit there. Yes, I wanted to add at the end of my tanning section that um, if you're interested in commercial um Influence in her, sorry, I'll rephrase that. Um, if you're interested in the tanning paper that you heard about, please have a look at our commercial interest in healthcare collection page and keep your eye out for more content coming out um, that will add to that in 2020. And if you'd like to see um, research and clinical practice and education, which is freer um, and independent from commercial influence, then please do sign our call for action, including sharing your ideas on how that can be done. I'm sure Duncan will put the link at the end. I will put all the links in. And Carl? Just to say, I noticed that Des Spence, Bad Medicine, is back in the BMJ. Uh, a GP from up in Scotland who wrote many years ago, and he's back, and he's one of the most interesting topical people to read. Hash, Health Belief Should Be Top of All Our Communications, is a great read. And in there, the finishing, he writes so well. My health belief is this. In the coming decades, imaging, laboratory testing and diagnostic algorithms will usurp the profession's position. Only those of us with high emotional intelligence will survive and core to this is respecting patients' differing health beliefs and agendas. But, hash, I might be completely wrong and hash, God might exist, although this seems highly unlikely. <laughs> there you go. I'll put a link to Des as well. You can find that text on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts, wherever else you get your podcasts from. So whilst you're there, you might as well subscribe if you haven't done so already so you don't miss out on us next month. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. <laughs>